0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. In this unprecedented moment, How To Academy is curating free live stream talks and conversations focusing on the psychological skills we need to cope with life under lockdown. The first starred Julia Samuel one of Britain's leading psychotherapists and a specialist in the psychology of change and grief. Julia has more than 30 years of experience helping everyday people in times of uncertainty, and she joined the journalist Hannah McInnes to explore the skills we need to adapt and hopefully thrive in this strange new normal. She also has a new book out, This Too Shall Pass, Stories of Change, Crisis and Hopeful Beginnings. If you order a copy from our partner, Primrose Hill Books, you'll be both enriching your own life and supporting a brilliant independent bookshop in this tumultuous time. Without further ado, here are Hannah and Julia.
1: Julia, thank you. Um, It's the most uncannily, timely of of titles, but actually you wrote the book before corona, before this situation. What
2: motivated you? to write it? And, and what did you want people to take away from it? I mean, the main reason that I wrote it was that the sort of unifying factor of all the clients from whatever background, whatever their presenting issue was, was that they had a problematic relationship with change. And then they felt that somehow they were doing it wrong, rather than recognizing that even change we want and certainly change that we don't choose we find it difficult and we kind of think if we will ourselves to do it or resist it or tidy our feelings in a sort of Marie Kondo type box, then we'll do it perfectly. But actually change is a messy, unpredictable, uncomfortable process, which, you know, the globe is experiencing right now. You say, of course, look about change, what we feel as we
1: change. And you write, sudden or big change hits us as if a tiger has jumped out at us and sends fear cascading through our whole being. But why is that? And it's your question. If change is part of the natural order of things, it's something we absolutely can't avoid. Why do we all feel so badly equipped to deal with it? And and why do we often face it with fear?
2: I mean, there are two sides to that. So the reason we respond as if there's a tiger jumping out at us is from our evolutionary beginnings, we have a negative bias to look for danger. So when we feel safe and everything's familiar and we know what's going on, we feel very calm. But if there's something that's new and changing and unknown to us, our body goes on alert. And the bigger the change, the bigger the alert. But in the 21st century, there's a number of things that affect us. One is that we no longer have fight or flight in the way that we did. And we think that we can have a fast track app, that we can organize our feelings to match the events in our life, that our feelings take much longer to catch up than the events. But also the fear is the signal of change. And all discomfort at one end and sort of real pain at another end it's the signal to tell us that this is something new so that you have to adapt and if we let the feelings come through our bodies and find ways of expressing them then naturally we evolve and naturally change as we're wired to do and the research is very um, irrefutable is that those that resist and block change have less joy and less success in life and also when change comes again which it never inevitably will they'll find it harder can
1: i just ask in your personal experience how it's working out obviously many of your clients already suffer from anxiety and depression and some people say that at this time it's almost better for people because who suffer from those things because they suddenly see everyone is feeling the same sorts of
2: feelings is that the case or does it exacerbate those sorts of feelings i mean to be honest it's unique and there's truth in all of what you said so whatever change hits us all of us will have our first um wired response our kind of default mode that we will go to. Some people get very busy, some people shut down, some people go to panic. And so everyone, when the lockdown came, will have their naturally wired response. For my clients, some of the clients who were really suffering, there was a strange kind of relief that they weren't alone with the suffering, that other people were suffering too, and that the world wasn't having a party when they felt they were kind of stuck inside and very depressed. Mm -hmm. But Other people who already were anxious or had some levels of OCD are finding it really intense and really, really difficult. So what my message in the book is that none of us have this perfectly curated response to change, that we will, our feelings run us. And that what we need to do is find ways of supporting us in it rather than resisting it. So in the book, through the case studies and the examples, there are lots of different ways that people have to create their own toolbox so that they manage themselves through the change for themselves.
1: And I said, you know, that we're all in the same boat, and that's absolutely not the case. And I don't know whether there are other people, I think I certainly feel it, you feel certainly a bit guilty for feeling overwhelmed when other people are going through a much harder time than, for example, I speak from my own experience. Um, and there is a sense of guilt that you say, you know, you feel like this and overwhelmed and, and anxious, and yet you're not suffering as badly as others. But your message, I think, in the book is you must all have self-compassion and, and self-care. And
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there are many things in what you're saying, which is, that, you know, guilt is there for a reason. It's to remind you to do the right thing if you think you're doing the wrong thing. But if you're having a feeling that isn't either right or wrong. So don't confuse feeling with fact. Mm -hmm. Just because you feel guilty doesn't mean that you are guilty. So it's very important to kind of separate out the two. And also, as you said, the most important thing when we are in the process of change or really through life is our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with others. And we have to start with our relationship with ourselves, so we need to be self-compassionate. But the other thing is that when we feel most powerless, one of the things that actually is incredibly effective is helping other people, is reaching out and connecting with other people, which in this country, hundreds of thousands have done, because not only do you begin to feel less powerless, but you are making a difference to someone else. They feel better, you feel better, as a kind of extra bonus your immune system is stronger when you help other people so i mean that is a a way of assuaging guilt although you can never talk yourself out of guilt people think they can kind of talk themselves down but but they can't
1: you talk in the book relationships are the most important thing such an important theme throughout the book people need people and quote. And well, your, your quotes, of course, yeah. and, and health are, are predicated on being close to the people we love. But if we're doing that digitally, is that does that compensate?
2: It's, it's a lot better than nothing. So I think the fact that there's video now more than just audio, it can feel very intimate because you see someone's whole face on quite a big screen. So you can read that. You know, we read faces. 80 percent of communication is nonverbal. So we pick up a lot from the screen. And actually, I think as we get more familiar with it, our sort of bandwidth of emotion connecting to it get adapts and change. I think our system changes. I'm even noticing when I have Zoom kind of chats in the evening with friends, the four of us to begin with, was a bit clunky and it felt a bit screeny. But now kind of two weeks later. We find a way of letting space for each other and you know feeling relaxed and it doesn't, it doesn't feel so different from sitting across a table, so I think we do change with it
1: and the other thing that seems very important is is vulnerability and I, I said we're all in the same boat. The idea that we are all feeling vulnerable, do you think there's something that comes out of that that we are all able to admit our own vulnerability in a way that we haven't been before to people seem more readily able to admit admit now we are a mess
2: we're not coping and there's less sort of shame or or stigma around that i think there is something very powerful about opening vulnerability and being able to express vulnerability which is very different from sort of moaning and you know um, complaining online because what you're doing is opening, you're not armoring yourself. And I think in a very kind of fast performing world when you're out there pushing your business or yourself uphill, you have to kind of armor yourself to move forward. But of course, if you're gonna connect with people, you need to be more open-hearted. You need to be able to feel more, to have greater connection with yourself. And then you transmit more and then you get greater connection back so i think some people in in some ways are having more in-depth conversations and closer intimacy than they did in their very fast paced Mm -hmm. lives and also but one thing never knocks out the other so i think people are having multiple experiences that you can have deep connected conversations you can be highly anxious you can be fearful about the future you know we're a complex um, system as human beings and I think often particularly in books there's this like 12 rules of life you know if you do this then you'll get everything like right and I, re- I think really what I'm saying more is the more aware of all the complexity that's going on inside you and the more you're kind of self-compassionate with it the more resilient you'll be in your openness and vulnerability and that's what you want is resilience.
1: Do you think that in some ways then there's a positive change that will come out of this in the sense that we do have this time forced upon us to you know look at ourselves to examine ourselves to accept those things you're saying that we must do
2: i mean i think for lots of people it will you know busyness is the most common anesthetic it's the thing that stops you feeling and so people can get very busy in four walls by the way i mean you can be constantly online and Instagram and so people cannot be doing that. But if they are using the time to explore themselves and have more open conversations and discover that actually, you know, always going to an office or always running may not be the answer to what they want in life. I mean, I think it's interesting. What I know and what we know from research is that there's this thing called post-traumatic growth. And that never negates the intensity of the trauma or the loss. So that is a given that that happens. And this doesn't make that better. But what people find is that when they find they've survived and come through a really devastating traumatic experience, at the same time, they find that they have different aspects of themselves. They never imagined that they would have, that they were more resilient, that they survived something they thought they would never survive that what matters to them in life, like connection to others, um, making meaning, changes, and that feels like growth, and it's called post-traumatic growth. Whether we can universalize that, and that is an experience that will happen on a level of millions, I don't know. People, you know, like in my book, people resist change so i think there will be some people who've really taken something from this and they'll learn something from it but i think a lot of people will want to go back to the default and kind of go back to what's familiar i mean it'll, it'll, it's a very very interesting kind of social experiment but i think people will be studying for decades actually uh,
1: well, i was exactly what i was, I was going to move on to say whether you feel it will last um, there's a lot of talk about this profoundly changing society when and hopefully, in not the too distant future we, we we go back to some sort of normal, but I wonder if you think
2: that we will be able to make those more positive changes last i wonder i mean it, the other message in in my book is that these things take um work and they take commitment and they take endurance and they take decisions, so that if someone uses this time to discover aspects of themselves they didn't know were there and this emerges and they choose then to live their life according to that new discovery, that it will challenge them. and But it takes commitment and endurance. But then they might find more meaning and they might find more satisfaction. Certainly we know is that meaning and connection to others is what makes a life that is happy rather than seeking happiness. I mean, do you think you've learned anything? What will you take from it?
1: I mean, I've learned so much, but it's exactly, I think that probably some of the experiences have been quite emotional and quite troubling. And you see whether, I mean, I, as we were talking about earlier, and I think a lot of people um, suddenly, and I'm not in isolation, I'm finding that I'm living with my family all together. And I, I know you speak about whether there are other people who are doing the same thing, you've spoken about the fact that that's a time when you really need to communicate with each other to work out each day how things are are working for
2: you and have a little mini cobra meeting I think you say yes I mean I think you know not seeing each other very much gives you an out doesn't it but when you're forced in lockdown to have every meal together, it exposes pre-existing fault lines. And also if you'll say with your parents, you revert back to the eight-year-old self and they become the, their parental self. So the whole power dynamic is confusing and difficult, but also kind of wonderful in some ways, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I suggest that if you're a group of you, I mean, we do this and my daughter and her husband and their kids are with us. And so every three or four days we after breakfast, we, it's not really long. We have a kind of 10-minute Cobra meeting and we sort out practical things like chores, like who's going to do lunch, what do we need to get, those things. But also, we, we being the therapist, we have a stress test. So everybody, including my 7-year-old and 10-year-old grandson and, and 12-year-old granddaughter, they give themselves um, marks out of 10 of you know what they're liking, what they're not liking, and what they want more of. And then they, at the end of every day, they do this thing where they do, one of them chooses a song that they all listen to. And then they do a five-minute meditation and they talk around the room, one gratitude each. And so I think one of the things that helps in this chaotic time is that we feel very chaotic internally. And so having a new structure that has a beginning and an end of the day that is a ritual that is like a bookend of your day. That is short and simple, but it's comforting and it's connecting. Is a very good way of having balance and helping you manage. You talk about a lot through the book. Your self-help toolbox
1: and and <laughs> self. My eight pillars of strength. Yeah, pillars of strength and self-soothing and and these are things that come up with so many of your clients. And of course, everyone has their own different ways of of switching off of relaxing of of trying to deal with these things but perhaps you could tell us whether there are some and I I think you you know some do come up again and again similar ones uh, that apply to everyone and more more
2: general advice. So I think one of the complicated things about self-help is that you want your self-help to be the sort of magic bullet that matches the enormity of the events that have happened to you whether it's COVID or whether you've lost your job or your husband's walked out on you. And what we need to first acknowledge is that our feelings take weeks and months to catch up on the event. And that the habits we develop to support ourselves given those feelings are like the weather, they sweep in and overwhelm you and they sweep out again and you don't have charge of that. If you develop habits that help bring your autonomic nervous system balance. So people often sort of shoot up to fourth gear. So I often talk about trying to get yourself down to kind of second gear. Three or four things work like magic, completely consistently. One is exercise. So getting your heart rate up. It can be doing a 12 minute app in your sitting room. It can be doing a Pilates class online. It is better if you go outside, being in nature helps, being in the green helps, obviously in the spring, but winter, summer, going outside is better. If you combine that with any kind of breathing exercise, and this isn't about finding the Dalai Lama or your your kind of inner arm. It's like, after you've exercised, come back, and if you breathe in for um, seven and out for 11 for five minutes, Mm -hmm. your system, the cortisol's already dropped because you've told your body you're not flying or fighting. You then breathe. So you tell your body, I'm not in danger, I'm calm. And then you give yourself a treat. So it could be a delicious cup of coffee, if you're me, or it could be a delicious smoothie, or you play a nice piece of music, but you intentionally give yourself a treat. That's a cycle that calms your whole body, which means then you have more resilience when the wave of anxiety or fury or distress comes through your system. So so exercise, meditation, finding some way of expressing how you feel With some people it might be journaling and this isn't writing a george eliot book it's like getting down what you feel getting so people's feelings like like people who are listening now they'll be incohate they'll be messy feelings in their body it's sort of putting your attention inside focusing on what the feelings are finding words to describe them and expressing them and you can do that on paper you can do it with a friend you can do it with a therapist you can do it with your sibling your partner so it's releasing it because when we do that we incrementally adjust to this new reality that we don't want when we resist and hold it down it stays tight inside us all of us know that you know if you're really worried about stuff if you don't tell anyone it just stays there like a kind of tin of rubbish in your system but when you actually let it out you do feel better then intentionally doing things that comfort and soothe you so for me it would be watching funny films or you know modern family if i've had a stressful difficult day i'll watch 20 minutes of modern family so if you think whatever you put into your system what you listen to what you watch what you eat who you see all of that affects your mood So if you're wanting to do something that's going to bring your mood to a kind of stable, feeling happy, content position, don't watch a horror film, if you see what I mean. But do, or it might be having flowers on your kitchen table, anything that kind of was a hot bath, those things really help. And then the big one is connection to yourself and connection to other people. So kind of knowing what's inside you and finding ways to connect other people. So if you're living alone right now, Connecting through tablets and phones is really important, really, really important, because, as I said, that is what matters to us most in the end. When we look back on our lives, the thing that matters to us most is the love and connection to other people.
1: One of the things I know that people find very hard to deal with at the moment is a complete lack of control you know we've come we 're in a place in life in modern day life where we 're used to, to things largely being fixable and you know i I know that you bring up a lot the serenity prayer and it is incredibly helpful. so for those people who don't know that uh, perhaps you could explain that and your thinking behind it
2: so it's from aa the serenity prayer but actually i think it's the perfect prayer for nowadays which is to accept the things you cannot change to change the things you can and have the wisdom to know the difference and so part of that you know i think particularly people who are very driven and ambitious. they And some of my clients are like this. They're fantastic, but they're used to willing and fighting their way through a difficulty. You know, everything they've do, faced in their life, they've got someone in to help them. They've chucked money at it. they have They're kind of thinking their way through this. Something like this, there's no thinking to be done. So the best thing you can do is keep it in the day. So have your mini structure not like a police state structure but your relaxed structure where you maybe do tasks in the morning nice things in the afternoon whatever it is for you and don't project into the future because the one thing is certain right now that we don't know our future and that can our imagination what we don't know is much more frightening than the truth and we can really send ourselves down a sort of technicolor nightmare of of worrying about what our future can look like Whereas when you know that you can deal with today, you know you can deal with making this next meal or talking to this friend, and that makes it much more manageable.
1: I think absolutely. I think obviously the greatest fear is the fear of not knowing, and no one knows what or if, when, and how it will end. But you say the most important thing is to try and live in the day uh, intentionally
2: for each moment. But also... I mean, who are we kidding? We have never had control over the things that matter to us most. I mean, I've spent 30 years working with people who are living with death and losses that they didn't expect. The thing that matters to us most, which is birth and death, we can influence, but fundamentally we have no control over it. And the same thing about what people think of us again we can influence if we're not a total bitch and we're perfectly nice people will more likely warm to us but Mm. they may not like us for reasons that are nothing to do with us they may look like their teacher who they hated so i mean we we have no control over the things that matter to us most and that has never changed
1: and also you quite rightly point out what we don't want is false hope and actually i'm thinking about what our leaders should be
2: telling us like trump he we believe in his hope don't we America's going to be triumphant at the end of this.
1: I think it's a very interesting thing that they should be navigating this path between being honest with us and and giving us hope. The danger of
2: false hope is worse, I think you'd say. Yes, so, I mean, there's a big difference between kind of shallow optimism and false hope. When I talk about hope as the alchemy that turns your life around, is that even, you know, when you're in the darkest pit, that hope is an emotion, but it isn't just an emotion. That supports it, but it's also a plan, like what you would hope to have. So this goes against my future planning, but a rough plan of what you'd hope to have, a plan of how you would get there, and Mm self-belief. And this wouldn't be something that you kind of concretely, completely commit to, but for hope, we have to have a kind of sketch of what we're hoping for. So for now, if someone's been furloughed, their hope will be that their business survives and that they can go back to their job and that they'll still be employed. And that's a realistic hope Mm -hmm. and one that's worth keeping. Whereas if they kind of go down the route, the business is going to go bust, I'm not going to have a job, I'm never going to get a job, they'll make their time that's already difficult much worse.
1: So I'm going to turn to the questions, and also someone suggested Wim Hof while we were going along, we and I that, but it's in your book. Cold water swimming, um, I think, is one of the most amazing, if you are lucky enough, or just a cold shower or bath,
2: I also think is an amazing book. Any of the things that make your system wake up with, with the shock that feels like fear but you survive it? So, I mean, I had a client in my book, Rachel, who went to the Hampstead Pools. She was very, very anxious and she decided to go to the Hampstead Pools and it transformed her because mm. she felt brave. It was an amazing habit being in nature. And also there's something about the physiology of jumping in cold water kickstarted to her whole autonomic nervous system that reduced her anxiety. It was amazing.
1: So um, I'm just going to, Now, open it up uh, for questions. So if you type them where um, you've been typing them in the chat box, Um, I I would be very interested. I'll just go with the the first one I can see. Um, In hearing Julia's views on some of the most challenging discussions we need to be having with relatives, such as understanding their wishes if they become sick um, and whether or not they want to stay at home, this is a huge concern and source of stress for this person who's asking with an elderly and frail relative who's currently
2: self-isolating. I think that's such an important question and I'm so glad that you asked it. I mean, I really believe we need to be having these conversations and ideally before there's a crisis. Probably the most important thing is to be having the important conversations about what you feel about your parent or the person, your relative or the person that you love, so that you don't have regrets of what you wish you'd said. That really matters. Mm -hmm. Um, And asking them So asking them about their end-of-life wishes. But you could maybe start by talking about yourself. So even if you're the generation younger, all of us feel much more mortal right now. And if your parent is someone who finds talking about death and dying very difficult, that you could start exploring by saying, I've been thinking about what would happen to me and what I would want if I became very ill. Would I want to stay at home? Would I want to go into an intensive care unit and be on a ventilator? And my feeling is for me, I'd rather stay at home. And so that you can have that kind of discussion um, with your parents so that you do know, and actually having an advanced directive that's signed will make what's already incredibly difficult much better. And I think one of the reasons people don't have those conversations is they have a kind of magical thinking that they think if I talk or even think about death or think about the person that I love is gonna die, somehow it will hasten their death. But actually, I think the person, who your your parent, um, who you're worrying about, they may well be worrying about them too, but don't want to upset you. And so there's a co-protection that can happen that both of you are very aware and very worried about these things. That are, you know, right in our faces right now. So it's much much better to be having those conversations. And I, you know, my message is that we should examine death and dying as much as we examine life and living, and that the sooner we do it, the more confident we are when we come to face it, as all of us will.
1: A lot of people um, reacting to the conversation we were having about going back to a new normal and how we would go back to this. Well, yeah, I, what are they saying? And the positive so a lot of people are saying advice for people who are enjoying lockdown and also people who are genuinely worried about readjusting going back to reality i think a lot of people were commenting and, and are commenting now in the questions about things like going back to a busy commute um and then and the genuinely that is a worry
2: which is interesting well i i mean if you have it so there's always reentry problems i mean all of us i that thing of coming back from holiday, that thing when you land at the airport and you're going home and you've got to unpack your case, there is always a transition difficulty that we all face. And this is gonna be intensified. It's gonna be with the volume turned up. So in some ways, all the coping mechanisms and self-support that I talk about to use when you're in lockdown, use as much or not more when you transition, but also be mindful. Like, really think, you know, talk to... I I don't believe that people's bosses aren't going to be thinking more about homeworking and that it'll be very useful to go into work and discuss and be honest at work about the transition. I think the more people get above the waterline, that people say what's on their minds to the people they're working with, that they're transparent, then you build stronger relationships and you feel more robust in making the decisions that you're doing, but also you feel more confident in the transition.
1: And I think this one I'm sure applies to so many people. It's about advice for living in the moment. This, this person says that they just have an unhealthy fixation on planning and living in the future. I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people who do and therefore find
2: it very hard when their future is unknown. I think it's really good to know that, first of all, that you know that you find that difficult. It's much harder for people who don't even realise it, so you have a level of awareness that's really good. One of the mechanisms I use a lot with people is, if you imagine in your mind a television screen and you put the picture on it of your uncertain future, and then you take a breath, so you close your eyes, put the picture on it of your uncertain future, take a breath, switch the channel, and put it on to a safe place, a kind of happy place, maybe a beach, maybe the top of a mountain, maybe your favorite garden, and then take a breath and then move your attention to what you're doing in the day. That really works at lowering your anxiety and stops you projecting into the future. And we're habit-making beings. We, We develop by making habits. The more you do it, the more powerful it is and the more effective it will be.
0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II, and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House, and Giselle at La Scala, Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before.
1: Um, I- I'm, I'm going to read uh, very sad. I'm, I'm sorry to read it, but I'm sure there are other people out there with the same situations but someone says that they lost their grandmother on Sunday and um, their other grandmother eight months ago firstly I'm very sorry for you and they say they're very grateful for your talk I'm experiencing a lot of anxiety do you have any advice for navigating my feelings of grief during this time of uncertainty well first
2: like Hannah to say I'm so sorry that's that's an awful lot of loss very close to each other and I think the um, experiencing a bereavement in the time of corona it will be intensified your feeling of loss. And I think grief does feel like fear anyway, so that what you're feeling is difficult as it is, let yourself know that it's normal. I hope you have people that are close to that you can talk to. I hope you have ways that you can find of expressing how you feel. That may be tears, it may be anger, but ways to support yourself. And I think one of the big important things to remember is that in grief, It's a twofold thing. One is to face the reality of the loss, to recognize and grieve the fact that your grandmother has died. But the other is that the love you feel for her never dies. And so that lives on and having touchstones to her memory, whether it's looking at photographs of her, whether it's wearing a scarf of hers, whether it's making her favorite cottage pie or walking where she walked, that you connect with her that she will always stay with you. And actually, if you asked her a question in your mind, you would probably know the answer so that people keep that dialogue going. What it's called in the trade is continuing bonds, that the relationship doesn't die, although the person has died. I hope that's a helpful thought.
1: Um, Someone who says they work with key workers, and wondered if you had tips to keep my team motivated during these times of crisis when people are anxious about themselves but also trying to support their clients through the
2: crisis that's a, yeah that's another very good question. I think dark humor really helps you know I think most of people who work in the NHS and because I worked in the NHS for twenty five years they do they do both they they're used to kind of being operative and being on and being very goal directed and when they feel themselves feeling very nervous they get super busy and i think one of the things that really helps calm them is is black humor is sort of telling jokes or sending you know the masses of things online now sort of funny stories what i what i've done with a team i'm working with is that i've given them a a three minute relaxation um that they've each got that they've got in their phone and it's a it's a very simple one where they scrunch up really, really tight and squeeze everything, close their eyes, and then they breathe in for seven and out for 11 for three minutes, and that winds their whole system down, and it expands their emotional availability. I've used it for years with doctors and nurses and midwives, and it's incredibly effective. If you email High to, to academy I can send it to you.
1: Um, if I know that... As I mentioned, your book is hugely based and you've said it on the importance of relationships. So I thought this, this person says that for those, and I'm sure there are many in long distance, and I'm sure, sure suffering the same, feeling the same things, not even in long distance, but those in long distance relationships isolating in different places, one of them is an NHS worker. How can
2: we keep everything hopeful? I think it's tough. I mean, I think you'd, you must also be on different shifts, so it's hard to see each other. Um, I think keep it in the day that you look forward to the times that you do speak. I think you can do sweet things for each other, like send each other little playlists or even send each other postcards so that you can surprise each other. I think you can make sure that you kind of go back and remember the times that you're together and that will ignite the hope that what it's going to be like when you're together next time. Those are the things i can think of now also i think doing stuff together like watching a film at the same time even if you're in different places or listening to music at the same time um, and you can accompany each other can't you through supper doing all sorts of things so that you kind of feel connected and i think that gives you hope too
1: many people have their children at home um, and there's advice about keeping them upbeat and also homeschooling <laughs>
2: I think for all of this one of the things is to give yourself a break that you're never going to be the perfect parent right now and all of you are going to have a difficult time your children are not going to be upbeat all the time and it's not possible for you to be upbeat and keep them upbeat so I think it's being realistic about what your expectations are that you can do fun things together you can play things together but also I would a lot of them you know it depends how old they are but the teenagers I've spoken to or heard about feel absolutely crushed that not they're not doing their A-levels or not going on their gap years. They're not having any sex. They're not seeing, they're not dating. They're not out exploring um, in the way that they expected and wanted to. And that is another living loss. So that is a loss. So I would do a kind of mixed would have that Cobra meeting. I would have some plans that you can do fun stuff together. I wouldn't be too military police about how much screen time they have. I'd let them have time with their friends and don't kind of police it because they need to talk to their friends. So let them do it. And it, in some ways, let them have treats they don't normally have. And they, uh, it can't do them that harm in a sort of limited time. I spoke to a specialist on it and she told me. So this comes from the horse's mouth. And I think the big thing is self-compassion. Like give yourself a break and mm. then... Um, I'm I'm really interested in this
1: person's question. They say, um, I'm worried about after lockdown, what will happen to our reactions and our connections with other people? Will it be different? Will we have a fear that we might think, shall I talk to them or or do they have have it? (laughs) So will we be able to go back to hugging and uh, being connected to people as we once were? I think that's a fear that a lot of people have. We've lost this sense of connection. Will we always feel we have
2: to keep a two-metre distance? I think it's really interesting. So I, I my first book, Grief Works, was published in China and I did a webinar in China um, in March and it was just as lockdown was being lifted. Um, and there was this, I don't know if it's different in the culture in China, but there was this enormous sense of distrust of anyone walking towards you and everyone was still wearing masks and gloves. And so there was fear. My, my kind of feeling is that, the levels of anxiety and we'll be there at the beginning. But as as there's a vaccine and as we kind of understand the virus more, we'll trust more and then we will be able to go back to how we've been before. But I don't know if other people know, like when I see films now where people just rush up to each other and hug each other, I get this pang, like, oh my God. Or I see people walking in the street. Yeah, I have this unbelievable kind of like, oof, that's, uh, you know, I, one thing is for sure, I am bloody well going to be doing that because I just know I will.
1: And <laughs> um, asks about the role of faith for people at the moment. I know that it's very hard. Churches, places of worship are closed. That's a place that people would have flocked to if they could have in times of crisis. It's very hard, um, people having to practice their faith alone when they can't be in communities. What, what's your advice
2: for them? And I'm sure it shakes faith in many ways as well i mean i don't have advice i mean i what i do know is that those that have faith have less fear about death and so they may be slightly less fearful now because they have a a belief system of going to a better place and they have faith in god that will is a kind of good god and a loving god um so that supports them some people, when terrible things happen, like someone may have had a terrible thing happen, who had faith, may lose their faith through COVID because it doesn't make any sense to them anymore to believe in God. What I think, along with the serenity prayer, is that hope is connected to kind of trusting and trusting there's some that we're not in charge, that there's some higher power, whether it's nature or Gaia or something. I think people do turn to that. I mean, the majority of people, whether they are practicing a religion or not, when something bad happens, they pray. Most people pray. If their husband is incredibly ill and they're in intensive care, um, people pray. So I think we want to believe that there is some benign force that's on our side. And I think the big thing really that it's saying is that we want to be able to trust and we want to be able to believe that good things will come through
1: it's a little similar to the relationship question but I, I think this applies more to people who are you know talking about relations inside their home yeah.
2: they, um, they, I mean there's more divorce requests already so how
1: can we be better partners um, they say during lockdown
2: so I, like I said before I think your pre-existing fault lines and your pre-existing difficulties will be exposed during lockdown. And also they'll be intensified during lockdown because if you're like us, you're fighting over bandwidth, you're fighting over rooms, you're, you know, all of you are kind of competing for space and all of us are kind of more anxious than normal. So I think one of the good things about this idea of a Cobra meeting is talking to each other, maybe just as a couple, and being honest about what your tendencies are so i know i get quite sort of um i get shut down when i'm worried and that isn't very helpful (laughs) because you know if someone asks me what i'm feeling i kind of as a therapist i don't have the best response i should be i do eventually say everything but it takes a time so i think give yourself and your partner time if you can i think walking and talking is the most effective way of being honest with each other so even if you've got your one hour that you're allowed out I'd go and walk and talk together because you're not eyeballing each other and you can look at the ground and you can have a bit of space. So I think owning what you're likely to be feeling, letting them own what they're feeling, looking at what the crossfire is, where the difficulties are, and kind of agreeing a truce, like for this time, let's try not to have that fight, you know, that we always have about sex or money or whatever the things are so that we turn up the volume on on being a bit kinder to each other um, so that we can do it without killing each other basically.
1: Someone says and I I have absolutely no doubt again that they speak for very many people how do you manage the lack of human touch I don't live with anybody and so I miss hugs.
2: (laughs) I wish I had an answer. I, I don't have one. I mean, I, th- I think screen connection is the next best thing, but it is not the same as a hug. I really get that. I don't know whether to suggest masturbating. I have no idea. Maybe that helps. Um, it could well, but that's the only thing I can come up with is toys and masturbating. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a... I think Sarah the- Perel would agree with me.
1: Um, people say are are we able to continue how are we able to continue being more open in the way we are now and we were getting there in modern society there's definitely people share a lot more but through this there's a lot of openness and sharing about feelings and, and that person says how can we continue being more open
2: like that I think it's a decision and I think it's also I mean one of the things I say in my book is that for relationships you know having a A strong love relationship and all relationships are a predictor of good outcomes in your life that you have you're healthier you're wealthier you're happier your memory is better in old age you have less pain in old age but that means you have to give them a priority and so if you give your work and busyness the priority you're not going to be having those conversations so really you have to decide, am I gonna drop something in order to make space to feel close to people to have those conversations? Um, If I wasn't having them before, and look at what was blocking them before. Maybe it wasn't a time thing. Maybe it was that you were scared and now that you've done it and you've seen that you're accepted and known as you are, which is one of the great kind of joys in life of being authentic is that how you feel yourself to be on the inside is what you show on the outside and it's what people receive is an enormous confidence builder and if that is happening for you then then you kind of keep on doing it babe well, someone responded to the question of, of needing a hug hug a tree um, okay,
1: okay. and I, I think nature and, and going outdoors can can perhaps be one of they're perhaps hugging a tree a lot of people are saying they like they like that response and um, this this one is actually i think very relevant to you because again as i said a lot of you talk about a lot about relationships and you talk a lot in your book about relationships in the modern day um, and online dating and how things are not as they used to be. But what is your advice, when says on potentially starting new relationships during isolation with video dating? Does this potentially exacerbate stress and anxiety? Should we be patient and focus on ourselves?
2: Oh, blimey, I don't know. I think um, if, you're, if you find a new relationship, whether it's online through COVID, Trust your instincts, kind of listen to yourself. I wouldn't kind of get your brain to think I shouldn't be doing this. I think if it's if it's meeting some need in you and it's the sort of person you've been looking for, just go slowly. That's the thing. I mean, I don't imagine yourself kind of committing because, you know, you need to meet each other and smell each other and know what it's like actually being with each other. But I think it's a very nice way of meeting if you've got all these weeks to to have all the conversations that sometimes people don't leave until after they've committed and then it's too late.
1: I'm moving all over the place, but there's no rival reason to the questions that are coming up on my screen. But um, somebody asked, and I'm sure lots of people would like to know this too, we mentioned key workers, but specifically advice for working with NHS staff at the moment. Uh, I think this person is, is referring to the fact that lots of us being asked to be volunteers, so going in to work with NHS staff. What what would be your advice to them?
2: Well, I don't quite know what the question is. Is the question about how you protect yourself from the the infection? Is it about how you... Working amongst and with NHS staff at the moment. I think, I mean, it's a great thing to be doing. Make sure that you're protecting yourself properly. And I think that the NHS staff are really appreciating the voluntary help. But also, you can't be expected to know everything. So get them to tell you what you need and what you're doing, and so that you can feel confident about the tasks that are set you. Most of them, I can think, are quite kind of straightforward tasks, aren't they? And I, I think that's all I can think of. Is there something specific they want?
1: No, I think there's, there, a few people asking, of course, it's a very difficult time for NHS staff, living with NHS staff, working with them under their particular pressures. So, um, I think it's, it, it was mainly, mainly to do.
2: do So when I work with them, I work with them every week. I get them to tell me how they're feeling. They always make a joke and I acknowledge how fantastic they are and what they're doing and how much I appreciate it. And I think they really feel that being acknowledged, I think really, um, gives them a boost. So I would do that too.
1: Um, I think I've got time just for the very, very one last question that's just popped in because I think it's interesting. Working with vulnerable people uh, and offering telephone support, any suggestions how to end a session as conscious they are immediately back to their lives and have no time to de-stress? I think it's a very good point. Many people are over the phone trying to support vulnerable people.
2: I normally, if I'm doing that, I'd call the five-minute bell before the end. So I'd say, so-and-so, we've got five minutes before the end, I'm just wanting to check, maybe should we do a breathing exercise for a few minutes? Wanting to check what you're going to do when you're finished on the phone with me. Are you okay? Is there anything we need to be thinking about? Make sure that you tell them when you're next going to speak and connect. You know, and if there's a lot that you're worried about, do it 10 minutes before the end so that you really give it an ending.
1: Julia, thank you so very much. I could go on for another hour at least, but um, our time at, in the virtual webinar is up. Thank
2: you all who are still out there, I think all yeah. of you are, for joining us. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much for joining us and I hope I meet you in real life one day.
0: This week's podcast starred Julia Samuel and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me, Dana Outcolt and Sam Algranti and edited by John Doughty. If you found it helpful, please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find a plethora of past podcasts and future live streams at howtoacademy.com, all for free. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.